the Bible reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember last week we looked at chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Joanne's going to read to us 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Uh, Good morning, church family. Can I start with uh, what a wonderful name the name of Jesus is. Can I have an amen, please, from all of you? Thank you. Morning, family. Um, My name is Joanne. I am from the Water for Life group, which is run by Eddie. And with your indulgence and Martin's, um, I would like to have one side road. The point that I wanted to make uh, while I was preparing for the reading today was verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. And this sort of resonated with me in the importance, the integral importance of life groups and support ministry in our DNA as a redeemed family of servants of mission, on mission. And I would like to encourage anybody today, new and old-timer, if you've not joined a life group, please do so. Make it a New Year commitment, not a resolution. Resolutions are broken. So let's make it a New Year commitment. If you are still thinking about it, please come and talk to me. I've been known to sell snow to Eskimos in the middle of winter, so I'm sure I'll be able to convince you. That being said, our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11, and it reads as follows. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, and for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of God. Well, I'm going to pray. Our country's had a rough couple of weeks, so let me pray that the Lord will focus our thoughts on these eternal truths which give us a foundation and a rock to stand on. Let's pray. Father, we are so conscious of the brokenness of our world. We are so conscious that without you there is no rock, there is no refuge, there is nowhere to stand. And yet we thank you that you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit, you have given us truth about this life and the next. And so we pray, Lord, that we may find our stability, our security in Christ and his word. And so we pray that you will once again speak to us and that we may hear the voice of God as we come to the word of God. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Last week we had a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. This week, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. We're spending these two weeks uh, looking not only at the first coming of Christ, but at the second coming of Christ. Two problems all human beings struggle with. Number one, what happens at death? Second problem is what happens to our world if it ends? If the world should come to an end, what's going to happen? How will it happen? When will it happen? Last week, Paul addressed the first problem, what happens at death. If you missed our sermon, the talk last week, you can pick it up on the website. This week, in chapter 5, Paul addresses the second problem, 
What will happen at the end of the world? Remember what we have here is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul around about 62, 63 AD. He's writing to a church in modern-day Greece called Thessalonica. That's the town. He was with them. He planted that church. You can read it up in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. He only spent three weeks with them, teaching them, and then he had to flee because of persecution. Paul lived in rough times. And now he's writing to them to give them encouragement and to teach them about the end times. Remember what I said last time is that the New Testament speaks about two comings of Jesus. The first coming is past tense, 2,000 years ago, where God became flesh. The second coming is future, when Christ will return in the flesh. So at Christmas, it's very helpful for us to remember the first coming and to prepare for the second coming. Our passage this morning, chapter 5, verse 1 to, 1 to 11, three headings that will help you and especially help me. Uh, number one, when will, when will Christ return? Number two, what must we do in the meantime? And number three, what guarantees do we have that it's true? So those are the three questions we'll have a look at as we look at this passage. Let me just go down two side roads. Number one is the word worldview. Everybody has a worldview. It is your view of reality. And there are two dominant worldviews in our Western world, uh, which to some extent includes Africa. Two worldviews. The one worldview is a biblical worldview. It's Paul's worldview. It's our church's worldview. That uh, there's uh, both a physical world and a spiritual world. Not just a physical world, but both. A physical world, a spiritual world. There's a natural world, there's a supernatural world. Let me show you Paul's worldview. Chapter 1. Just quickly turn back one page. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul is quite clear that there's a natural world and a supernatural world, a spiritual world and a physical world. Notice chapter 1, verse 1. He talks about a God, a supernatural God, the true and living God. God the Father, God the Son, and notice chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, God the Holy Spirit. Paul believes that there's a real God with real power, God the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 9, not only is there a God, but in terms of Paul's worldview, there are false gods called idols. And then verse 10, it's filled with both the natural and the supernatural. It's filled with both the physical and the spiritual. Notice there, verse 10, just in that one verse, it's chock-a-block of Paul's worldview. The Son died physically. The Son was physically, supernaturally raised from the dead. The Son ascended physically into heaven, a place called heaven, which is different from earth. The Son will return to earth, and the Son will rescue us from wrath and judgment. There we have Paul's worldview. And then chapter 2, verse 18, notice, Paul talks about a real Satan. There's a real Satan. There are real evil spirits. There's a real devil who have real power. Christ's power is greater, but there is a real Satan. There are real evil spirits who influence this world. Let me try and draw that here on the whiteboard so that you understand the two worldviews. And what you'll notice is you'll need to decide it's one or the other. You can't have both. So let's have a look at the two worldviews so that you understand where Paul is coming from and you understand where I am coming from. Here is a secular worldview which sees this world as a closed universe. There is no God, there's no Satan, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no eternity, there's no judgment, especially no judgment. Our secular world hates the idea of judgment, that we should be held accountable to God. That is our, second, that is our secular worldview, where all that is is what you can see and touch and smell and count. There's nothing else that is a secular worldview. And many of our friends and family, that is where they are. And perhaps this morning, that's where you are. Hopefully, you'll move to the, to the Christian worldview, which is different. The Christian worldview, your biblical worldview, 
says that there is a creator God who created this world, who sustains this world, who is involved in this world in all kinds of different ways, but in particular through his Son and through his Spirit. There's a creator, there's a creation. It's the biblical worldview. It is an open universe. There's a supernatural God, but there's also a supernatural Satan who has influence in this world. There are supernatural evil spirits who have an influence in this world. There are supernatural angels that have influence in this world. That is a biblical worldview. When you have that worldview, you understand chapter 4, chapter 5. It's not just a physical world. No, it's a spiritual world. It's not just a natural world. It's a supernatural world. Both and. And you have to make the, make the decision. Which is your worldview? Everybody has a worldview. It's your view of reality. So the worldview that Paul is coming from in this chapter is this worldview. Where there's a real God, there's a real Satan, there's a real hell, there's a real heaven, there's a real judgment, there's a real end of this world which is diametrically opposed to a secular worldview. And you have to make the choice as to which worldview you believe in. Because your worldview will have eternal consequences in this life and the next. And hopefully, by the end of this morning, you will move. If you are here, I hope that I put some doubt in your mind that you become a backsliding atheist. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you became a backsliding atheist from this morning, that is the best kind of atheist, and you start understanding a biblical worldview. Can I just quickly say, your worldview affects everything. So if you have a biblical worldview, you will understand the world. You will understand that the world is both beautiful and broken. It doesn't surprise you. You're not shocked by it. You're not shocked by yourself and by other people that at the same time we are both great and wretched. At the same time, because of Genesis 1, we are great. Because of Genesis 3, we are wretched. At the same time, you will understand yourself. You will understand the world. You will understand other people. You will understand the, the purpose of life. You will understand, you will experience forgiveness. However, if you hold to a secular worldview, you cannot logically understand those things. You cannot understand sin and evil and depravity. You don't have the categories. You don't have the vocabulary. If you don't believe in Satan, how do you explain what is obvious demonic activity? You can't. You're puzzled. Life is a puzzle. You're confused all the time. That is where you are if you have a secular worldview. How do you understand forgiveness? How do you experience forgiveness if you have a secular worldview? If you have a secular worldview, how do you explain joy? How on earth do you explain thankfulness? If you're an atheist, how can you be thankful? Because who are you going to thank? There's no one to thank. I pity you. You've got no one to thank. You have these feelings of great thankfulness, but there's no one to thank. That's because of your worldview. And it's a wrong worldview. You need a biblical worldview which helps you understand yourself, other people, the world, helps you understand the gospel and why Christ came to rescue us from our brokenness and our sinfulness. First side road is the word worldview. Second side road is the word dualism. Dualism means two. So you have two parts. Many of us, if we are honest, have a problem of belief when it comes to chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 2. Let's quickly have a look at that. Many of us, if we're honest, have a problem of belief when it comes to chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul says, For the Lord himself physically will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Many of us have a problem of belief when we read that. Is that really true? Will it physically happen? We have a problem of belief in chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So our problem is we have a difficulty sometimes, some of us, 
in thinking that Jesus will physically return. So we kind of think, yes, he will return, but it will be spiritual, he will be a spirit, he'll be in a disembodied state. We think of ourselves being with the Lord in heaven, and we generally think of ourselves as a spirit, sort of hovering in heaven with the Lord. And we have a difficulty believing that we will have physical resurrected bodies in heaven, that our physical resurrected bodies will rise from the dead. Remember from last week, the Bible is quite clear, when you die, not if you die, okay, when you die, your body will disintegrate, either by being burnt or being buried or being lost at sea. When Christ returns, you have now died. When Christ returns, let me just explain, when you die as a Christian, your spirit, your soul will be with the Lord immediately but your body's still here. We've buried your body. But your spirit, your soul, goes to be with the Lord straight away. You remember what the Lord said to the thief on the cross. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. So the moment you, you close your eyes in death, the Lord will gently wake you in his presence. Your soul, your spirit will be with the Lord. When Christ returns, he will resurrect our bodies, which are now ashes be they burnt or buried or lost at sea. He will resurrect them, your cells, your arms, your legs, your hands, your eyes, your ears, your kidney, your liver, all of it. And he'll resurrect it, and you'll be perfect, by the way. Won't that be great? And your body then will be reunited to your soul and your spirit. You will be whole. We are holistic beings, body, mind, and spirit. And in the new heaven and new earth, after Christ has raised us from the dead, our bodies from the dead. So think of the, think of the thief on the cross. The Lord said, this day you will be with me in paradise. But his body was buried. It was his spirit, his soul, that went to be with the Lord. So if the Lord should return after you and I have died, our spirits and souls will go to be with the Lord. Our bodies will be buried. And then on the last day, our bodies will be raised from the dead and reunited with our spirits and our souls. Now, we sometimes find that hard to believe. It's our disbelief of chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 2. And let me tell you the reason why we find it difficult. It's because our worldview on this matter has been influenced more by Plato than by the Bible. That's why. Plato lived 600 B.C., Plato and the Greek philosophers believed in dualism. Let me try and draw that again. Are you still with me then? Yes? Okay. They believed in dualism. So this is Plato. This is dualism. This is dualism, which is not Christian. It's not biblical. This is Plato. Use the other pen. Plato and the, and the Greek philosophers said there's an upper story, which is your mind and your soul, or your mind and your spirit. That is the upper story. Think of a house. That is the upper story. And the lower story is your body, and they are separate. Upper story, your soul, your mind, body is lower story. And Plato taught, and the Greek philosophers taught, and it's still in our culture to this day. That is why we struggle with bodies being in heaven. They were saying that the soul, the mind, is good. The soul, the mind, is the real you. And your body is not the real you. The body is an encumbrance. The body is bad. The body is neutral. So they had this dualism. The soul is good. The mind is good. The body is bad. So Christians were teaching that if you are resurrected, it's your body and soul that are resurrected. Don't worry about the body because the body is unimportant. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we are holistic. Body, mind, and spirit is the real you. 
The real you is not just your soul and your mind and your spirit. No, the real you is your soul, body, mind, and spirit together. We are holistic creatures. Just by the way, this platonic thinking is what has, this is a totally by the way, this platonic thinking is at the back of this whole transgender movement. Because the transgender movement says you are not your body. What is important is your person. They call that your person. You are not your body. That is not the real you. So you can decide in your mind, your soul, your person, who you really are. That is a nonsense. We are holistic. Your body is part of who you are. Body, mind, soul are together in this life and the next. They're not divorced. We don't go to heaven with disembodied states. No, we go ultimately when our bodies are resurrected, when they are reunited with our spirits, they will be with the Lord physically in heaven. So, there I've given you a lecture. So important, your worldview, your view of reality. Let me just make one last comment. It's time, so I'm not going to sing it, but time to say goodbye to your platonic worldview. You need a biblical worldview. We are holistic people, body, mind, and spirit. We will not have disembodied spirits hovering around in heaven. No, our bodies will be redeemed. They'll be resurrected. They'll be new bodies that have been reunited with our souls and our spirits. Now, perhaps this morning you are a guest, you are a visitor, or perhaps you're looking on the website and you're thinking to yourself, you probably won't say it out aloud, this is all, Martin, this is all absolute nonsense. That's why I don't normally come to church. There's only one dimension, there's only one reality, our physical world, what you can see and touch and smell and taste and count. There's no heaven, there's no resurrected bodies, just give me a break. Perhaps that's what you're thinking right now. Interesting, I have an article... It's a scientific article written a couple of years ago quoting scientists from Yale, Princeton, Stanford. And they believe that there are at least 10 unseen, unobservable dimensions and an infinite number of imperceptible universes. Extraordinary. If that's what leading scientists believe, perhaps we shouldn't feel so self-conscious or embarrassed about only one imperceptible universe called heaven. And we don't believe it because of those scientists. We believe it because of the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. But it's interesting how leading scientists will tell us there's an infinite number of imperceptible universes. Well, all we're saying is, guys, let's just stick to one. Let's call it heaven. All right, two side rows. Let's dig in straight away. You still with me? I hope so. Number one. When will Christ return? Have a look. I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you as we unpack the Word of God. When will Christ return? Verse 1 to 4. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, the first thing to notice there in verse 2 is that Paul talks about the day of the Lord. Now, it's an Old Testament phrase used in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, and normally referring to judgment. So in the book of Amos, chapter 5, Amos says, Woe to you, he's speaking to the Israelites who have deserted their God and his word and their covenant with God. And Amos says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That day will be darkness, not light. Pitch dark without a ray of light. Joel called it the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, like in Exodus, it's seen as a double-edged sword. So, on the one hand, it brings salvation. On the other hand, it brings judgment. 
So think of the Exodus. There was salvation for the nation of Israel. God saved them, but God brought at the same time judgment upon Egypt. Here in our passage this morning, same thing. The day of the Lord will bring rescue for the Lord's people, but it will also bring judgment and wrath. So that's the first thing to notice, the day of the Lord. The second thing to notice is that Paul is very concerned that he gives them accurate information, that they're not in the dark, that they understand reliable information, true truth. Notice again, verse 1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness. We all know fake news, fake information, deceptive social media. Paul says, I've already taught you about the end times. You know about them, but just to remind you, just to reaffirm, let me just restate the truth. So there's no confusion, there's no misunderstanding, there's no insecurity, there's no superstition. Perhaps uh, perhaps as a parent with young kids, you've received a uh, birthday party invitation. And uh, some of them, perhaps you've received one, they quite common, says what, and it says party, says where, and it gives the address, it says why, it says birthday, who, and so on. Well, that's what Paul is doing here in this chapter. He's giving exact, clear information about the end times. What? The personal return of Christ. Where? Everywhere. It will be a global event. Why? To gather believers and to punish unbelievers. Who? Jesus, the King of Kings. When? And here's the focus of verse 2 and 3. Paul says we know 100% that he's coming. And we know 100% that we don't know the date. (laughs) That's what he's saying. We know 100% that he's coming. And we know 100% that we don't know the date. It's absolutely certain, he says. Notice there, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. It will come. Verse 3. He says, then suddenly destruction will come. And Paul uses two analogies to help us understand the suddenness of the coming, which is certain. It is sudden and certain. Two analogies. The one is like a thief in the night. Now, we've all had break-ins in our homes, most of us. Normally at night, isn't it? It's sudden. It's unexpected. We haven't had one here at the church for a number of years. We're so blessed. Uh, Just by the way, we do have 24-7 man security, if you have any ideas. (laughs) And there are dogs at night. Just a warning. But in the early years of our church, we used to have a break-in once, twice a year. And it was always a shock. Uh, and uh, ADT would call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's a shock. The phone rings. And um, I drive to, 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 to the church. I live in Borna Valley. It's about 10 minutes ago, 10, 10 minutes away. I drive to the church. I'm all groggy. I arrive here. And there's the ADT guys, and the door is mangled. There's glass on the floor, and normally a couple of computers gone. Funny, they never, they never stole Bibles. You know that? <laughs> never stole Bibles. But it was always a shock, because they never sent me an email or a WhatsApp message and say, Thursday 28th, 2 a.m. They never did that, because thieves don't do that. It's always unexpected. Well, says Paul, that's exactly how it will be with the Lord's coming. No advance warning. No emails, no WhatsApp messages. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. And remember, that's exactly what Jesus taught us. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and verse 36. Jesus taught exactly the same truth. Matthew 24 verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, yes, Jesus' teaching, he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. I'm always amazed at Christian groups and Christian leaders and some churches and websites that announce the year when the Lord will return. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? There's some weird Christians out there. There's a lot of weirdos out there. Only one or two here, but there's a lot of weirdos. <laughs> there's, a lot of weird, there's a lot of Christian weirdos out there. You know that. And um, some of them will give you the date, the time, when the Lord will return. And Jesus said, that's nonsense. No one knows. No angel knows. No person knows. Not even Jesus as Son of God, Son of Man knows. Only the Father. As at the time of Noah, people lived as if there's no, no tomorrow, there's no death, there's no eternity, there's no God. And suddenly the flood came and took them all away. Totally unexpected, totally unprepared. We've seen floods on TV, haven't we? Totally unprepared, totally unexpected. As I look around at our South African culture, we know different from the times of Noah. Are we? No one actually talks about the end of the world as such. No one talks about the return of Christ. No one talks about the fact that there's judgment. No one talks about the fact that there are two destinations, one heaven, one hell. In fact, many churches don't even teach about these things. In fact, the only time our culture touches on the end times is in a joke. Have you seen that cartoon? You see them from time to time where there's an old man holding up a board and the board says the end of the world is nigh. How does our culture deal with the end times? As a joke. And yet both Paul and Jesus make it quite clear it will be sudden and unexpected. So look around here in Gauteng, just like the time of Noah, people go to restaurants and shabines, people watch soccer and more soccer. There's marrying and giving in marriage, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, no email, no WhatsApp, Jesus himself in person will return. Imagine that. Imagine that. Two people working on a project at work, all clustered around their laptops, and suddenly one is taken and one is left. Two people having coffee and a muffin at Mug and Bean. Suddenly one is taken and one is left. Four of you having a braai in the garden Saturday afternoon. Three are taken and one is left. Like death, the return of Christ focuses the mind. No wonder Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. Don't be asleep. Dozing. You don't know when the Lord will return. Second analogy, notice there, he's talking about when will Christ return. The first analogy is that it's like a thief in the night. The second analogy, verse 3, is like labor pains of a pregnant woman. Go back to Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, for me, this is second-hand, obviously, but you mothers, those of you who are mothers, you know exactly what Paul is talking about. The gynae gives you a date, but you know it doesn't quite work like that way. In fact, you know when it's close, when your husband finally paints the baby's room. It's not too far off and sees that there's petrol in the tank. And then, without warning, right in the middle of the night, those labor pains start. And once they start, you don't know the moment when they will end, but the birth is unavoidable, totally unavoidable. It may be two hours, it may be 20 hours, but it's going to come. That baby's going to come. Well, Paul says that's how it is with Jesus. We don't know the exact date. It may be two years and maybe 2,000 years, but the day is unavoidable. And of course, the question is, will we be ready? Or will we be asleep? So there are two analogies here. The thief in the night tells us it will be sudden and unexpected. The woman in labor tells us that it will be sudden and unavoidable. 
In the first case, there's no warning. In the second case, there's no escape. You may not believe it, but there's no escape. And Paul says, verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Paul says, you're not living in fear, intrepidation, uncertainty. It's certain. He's coming. We don't know the exact day, but he's coming. I've, I've prepared you. I've told you. It won't surprise you. Imagine being, being in the middle of the second coming, unprepared. Some years back, I was, I was, I was running. I can't remember where it was. It was a really open, uh, open road, open space. Uh, I've been a runner all my life. I used to call it running and jogging. I now call it shuffling. Um, and I was running, and the storm clouds were gathering, and I'm thinking to myself, let me speed up, which was impossible. And uh, um, suddenly there was just crack of lightning. I mean, I just jumped out of my skin. Sudden, unexpected, nothing familiar, terrifying. Imagine that's the second coming of Christ. Absolute shock and terror. No time to pray. No time to turn to your Bible. No time to trust in Christ. No time to believe in Christ. There's no one else there with you. You on your own. Your eternal destiny fixed and sealed at that moment. Of course, if you are in Christ, it's a day of joy. It's a day of celebration. Finally, oh Lord, the struggle, the blood, sweat and tears. Finally, you've come. You've come to take me home because miracle of miracles, God, grace found you. And so when the Lord's coming, Paul is saying, be encouraged. Don't be fearful. If you are in Christ, he's come to fetch you. He's come to take you home. The struggle is over. The battle is over. The warfare is over. You're with the Lord. He's he's taking you home. So there's the first question. When will Christ return? Second question. What must we do in the meantime? How do we prepare for the second coming of the Lord? He hasn't told us the date, but but he is coming. How do we prepare? Verse 4 to 8. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Remember that Jesus said, John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So what is he saying? He says, if you belong to Jesus and Jesus is the light, then quite obviously you will take on the family likeness in your lifestyle, in your behavior, in your living. That's what he's talking about. That's how we prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. We live in the light, not in the darkness. And Paul uses three phrases here to instruct us how we ought to live before the return of Christ. First phrase is the one day, night, and light, darkness. And Paul is saying, if you belong to Christ, and if Christ is the light, then your normal, natural habitat as a child of the light is to live in the light. You don't belong in the darkness. You don't belong in the night. You don't live in stage 10 or stage 12. No, you live in the light. Now, sadly, occasionally we drift into the shadows, don't we? We lose our way or you fall into a dark hole. But if you belong to the light, when that happens, do you know what happens? You hate it. Sometimes the darkness is intoxicating, isn't it? It grabs our hearts, it grabs our minds, it sucks us in. And sometimes, sadly, we give in. And then we discover this is poison. And we're ashamed of it. Because our natural habitat is to live in the day, to live in the light. 
The mark of a Christian is not that we are perfect. The mark of a Christian is that when we fall, when we fail, we come back to the Lord and say, Lord, wash me again, cleanse me again, fill me with your spirit, help me to live in the light. I'm so ashamed of having drifted in the shadows. And my dear friend, if you have fallen into a dark hole, don't stay there. Don't be miserable, depressed for days and weeks. No, come back to, back to, back to the Lord now. Now, say, Lord, here I am, a miserable sinner once again. Lord, wash me, cleanse me, fill me with your spirit. I hate it. That's the mark of a Christian. We hate sin. We sometimes do it, but we hate it. Here are two tests. So we live in the light. That's the mark of a Christian. Let me give you two tests. Let let me ask you two questions. You don't have to answer aloud. You have two tests whether you're living in the light because you need to live in the light. That is a mark of a Christian. We live in the light. Our lives are open. Here are two questions. One is, do you have a problem if you're a young person, your parent, if you married your spouse? Do you have a problem if your spouse has a look at your cell phone as to who you are speaking to or talking to and what you are saying? Do you have a problem with that? Because if you do, Why? Why do you have a problem that your spouse looks at your cell phone to see who you're talking to and what you're saying? Well, the reason is you're not living in the light. There's something happening behind the scenes. All these years, my wife, Jean, has always had access, total access to my phone. She never looks at it. Why? Because it's so boring. (laughs) You have no idea. My email, if you email me, that email goes to me and to Helen. At the same time. And Helen said to me years ago, Martin, haven't you, haven't you got private things? I said, Helen, my life is so boring. You can look at anything. Is your life like that? Do you live in the light? Here's another question. Would you have a problem with your spouse having a look at your credit card expenses? Yeah? So you can secretly buy her a present. But are there things there that you don't want him or her to see? Your business credit card, your personal credit card. If you don't want him or her to see it, why? Well, the reason is, in one way or the other, you are walking in the dark. You're walking in the shadows. We are to live in the light. Now, sometimes the shadows and dark is intoxicating. That's the nature of this world. That's why we are in a fight. But if you're a Christian, you hate it. And you're ashamed of it. Second, second, quickly, time is going. Second phrase that he uses of how we are to prepare ourselves for living before the return of Christ. One is we live in the day, we live in the light, we don't live in the night or the darkness. Second is, he speaks, verse 6 and 7, about being asleep or awake. He speaks about being drunk or sober. Let me read verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, isn't that true? When you're asleep, when you are drunk or half drunk, You're not totally aware of what's going on. You're not totally conscious. There's a lack of consciousness. There's a lack of sensitivity. There's a lack of awareness because you're asleep or you're half drunk. And Paul is saying death is certain. The return of Christ is certain. Judgment is certain. And you're asleep. What on earth are you doing asleep? What on earth are you doing half drunk? You need to be awake. You need to be sober. You need to live a self-controlled, disciplined life. We do not know when we may die or when the Lord will return. If I remember correctly, after everyone on board had been told that the Titanic was going to hit the immovable ice and sink, the band kept playing. And people kept dancing. And some asked for another cocktail. And Paul says, my goodness me, if Christ is returning, if there's a judgment day, if you will face death, we don't have an option. Be awake, be sober. 
Be disciplined. Live a self-controlled life. The third analogy, notice verse 8. What must we do as we prepare for our death or the return of Christ? We are to put on the military armor for battle, for warfare. Notice verse 8. But since we belong to the day, so we're conscious of the day. We're conscious of the end of time. We're conscious that this world will end. We're conscious that we will die. Since we live in the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 8 is quite a striking verse because normally we would associate military uniforms with drunkenness. Yes? But Paul says, no, put on your military armor and be sober. If you belong to the king of the light, don't be surprised that when you are living with the king of the light, you will be in warfare because the darkness is aggressive. It wants to woo you back. It wants to draw you back. And so you need to put on your armor of hope and faith and love and Christ and the gospel. When you come to Christ, you become a darkness fighter. And the darkness can be aggressive and demonic. No more pajama living. Put away your PJs. Put on the armor. Sober up. Wake up. Live in the light of eternity. Don't think I'll eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter. No, but take off your PJs. Put on the armor of God because you're now in a spiritual fight, spiritual warfare. Last question. First, when will Christ return? Second, what must we do in the meantime? Number three, what guarantees do we have? How do we know this is all true? Well, let's pick it up, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So you may say, Martin, this is all good and well. It's great on paper, but you don't know how weak I am. If this was all up to me living in the light, I'm going to blow it. I'm really not going to make it. And Paul says, well, don't give up, don't despair, because ultimately it's not dependent on you. It's not actually dependent on who you are or what you do. It's dependent on who God is and what he's done. My dear friends, if we're going to get to the end, it's not because we're hanging on to God. It's because God's hanging on to us. Believe me. That's why we'll get there in the end. He hangs on to us. So what are our guarantees? There are three guarantees, very quickly. Number one, God's purpose. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. If you are a Christian, it's because God has elected you, God has chosen you, God has saved you, God has rescued you, and God will get you to the end. That's why you'll get there. God's purpose will not be thwarted. No one in this world is going to thwart the purposes of God. God is sovereign. God is in control. He will see to it that his children, those who live in the light, those he has elected, those he has chosen, those he has justified, they will be glorified. They will be with him one day. That is God's purpose. And if you're a real Christian, my dear friend, you can kick and shove as much as you like, but you won't get away. He will hang on to you and get you there. Second reason. Christ died for us so that we might live with him. So we don't have to fear the return of Christ. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear end times because the same Jesus who died on the cross for us, he loved us so much. He loved his enemies, sinners, ungodly so much. People like you and me, he died for us. That same Jesus will come and collect us. So we don't live in fear. We don't live in superstition. We don't live in insecurity. No, the same Jesus who died for us to rescue us is the same one who will come to collect us and fetch us. And thirdly, that same Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead. How do we know this is not all mumbo-jumbo? For many reasons, but one of them 
is that Christ died physically, historically, objectively, and God physically, historically, objectively, supernaturally raised him from the dead. And he said, I'm coming back to to collect you. That's how we know it's true. So the only question is, do you belong to him or not? That's really the only question. And if you don't, wouldn't today be a good day to say, oh Lord, I don't understand it all, but will you rescue me? Because without you, I'm lost. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You speak to God. You tell him where you are. Father, if we're honest, all of us have this past week, this past year, been dabbling in the shadows, in word or thought or deed. All of us, Lord, in one way or the other, have fallen into a hole. And we thank you, Lord, that your love is greater than our sin. Your light is greater than our darkness. And the light will never be extinguished. Help us to come back to you, all of us, this morning. And once again say, oh Lord, will you have mercy on me again? Will you cleanse me again? Will you wash me again? Will you fill me with your spirit again? Will you renew my commitment to serve Christ again? And thank you, Father, that in this broken, disordered world and country in which we live, that we have certainty. We have real hope. We know that Christ is in control. God is in control. That God's purposes will be accomplished. And that those who belong to him will one day be with him. Lord, in the meantime, will you help us to live godly lives? We can't do it on our own. Without your spirit, we really are hopeless. So will you help us every day in our words, in our actions, and Lord, especially in our thoughts, will you help us to live in the light? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.